0: Sorghum is one of the ideal crops for sequestering carbon. It captures more carbon and buries it in the soil deeper and for longer. So there's a lot of benefits just there alone. Uh, You know, listen, you can pop it like popcorn. It's a smaller pop. You can roast it like corn nuts. It's an easier crunch and it's flavor neutral. So you can flavor it however you want, just like popcorn. You can use it like rice in a pilaf or in a soup. There's actually a jambalaya I like to make with it and you can use it in flour it's a gluten-free product we use it at our house just like we would regular wheat flour
1: it's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on farm to table talk with your host roger wasson If i ask you to name a grain i'm going to bet one of the first grains you mentioned won't be sorghum and we're going to find out why that's the case and how it might get different because there's a lot to learn about where sorghum fits into products into production farming the environment the whole range of things and i want to welcome nate bloom who's the head of sorghum united which is a voluntary organizations working on research and promoting this kind of underutilized crop so nate welcome to farm to table talk
0: mr Watson. it's a pleasure to be with you thank you so much for having me yeah
1: well i'm just roger you don't have to call me mister that's that's all right we're just going to have a conversation you know really nate i'm almost embarrassed that uh, i could walk out into a sorghum field probably not recognize it. And that's in in spite of the fact I've spent my whole life around farms and farmers and agriculture and grew up on a farm. And I think where I grew up, we would have to take a long car ride to get to a sorghum field. Now you're in Lincoln, Nebraska. I don't think you have to go as far to see Uh sorghum.
0: No, not as far, perhaps, but uh, certainly further than when I was growing up on the farm, uh, just 45 minutes away from here. Mm-hmm. And we can talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, well, let's
1: do talk about why that is. How come how come uh, we don't see sorghum everywhere?
0: Well, let's start uh, way back. Okay. Let's, let's give a little history lesson.
1: Are you going to go to Egypt?
0: I was actually just in Egypt. I just got back from <laughs> <to> Egypt. <laughs> Physically, I, I was there.
1: Yeah, I um, and no, I thought there was somewhere in that part of the world where you, you, you're going to go way back. I thought, Well, a you know, couple thousand is, years.
0: That is the part of the world we're going to go back, but we're going to go back way more than a couple thousand years. Okay, um, you know, Sorghum and millets. We're, we're going to talk about sorghum today, but we do work with millets as well. Sorghum and millets are among the first grains that mankind ever cultivated. So forget Egypt. Let's go back to Babylon, right? Let's go back right. to uh Umer and and uh you know the uh Euphrates you know river and all all those uh all that area. Um, you know, this, these grains, which are small grains, mm-hmm. have been uh, around humans for as long as uh, our modern gut microbiome has been evolving, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happened over time, and this is maybe a holdover from the post-colonial era, is when European powers went into places like Africa and India, and they saw all these small grains, which, by the way, we say millets, but there's actually dozens of different varieties within that, different species. And uh, they saw these small grains, including sorghum, and they didn't know what they were um, because they're not typically grown in the more northern climates of of Europe. Um, And they convinced uh, the people there that they didn't want to grow sorghum and millets because those were, you know, poor man's crops, so to speak. Um, And they should grow modern crops like corn and wheat. And so for a long time, that's what's happened. Um, You know, eventually... uh, you know, there's, there are still pockets of the world, of course, that still use it and have continued to use it. Um, but eventually, it just really kind of fell out of favor, fell out of mindset. Um, you know, when we look at the homestead days here in uh, in the United States, when we had uh, farm families moving out to the West into the middle part of the country uh, to claim lands and put down homesteads and farms, uh, sorghum, or milo, as it was called, was one of the crops that they were growing at the time. Um, because it's a really hardy crop, it's a very resilient crop. Uh, however, over over the course of many decades, um, you know, again, it kind of fell out of favor in favor of corn and soybeans and wheat, uh, which are all great crops. We love those too. Um, but there's definitely room on the plate for for all of them. So part of what our organization is trying to do, and I say part because there's a lot that we're trying to do. But part of what we're trying to do is simply reintroduce these ancient grains to consumers. And in so doing, then, uh, you know, more of our farmers will grow it because they'll have uh, better access to places where they can sell it uh, for a premium value.
1: Now, you're saying something that rings a bell. We hear people talking about ancient grains a lot more than we used to. and if. You know, it doesn't take marketers long to figure out that uh, something's going to be received favorably, and and so they're working it into the label on a lot of products to say if it, if it includes ancient grains, so sorghum, or you said um, even milo, uh, millet uh, are amongst ancient grains. Then is that right?
0: That's true, and at least with the. The buzzwords of ancient grains, we can really identify what those are. The one that, uh, the one that uh, you know, I think we're still trying to quantify. Um, uh, at least when I go to Washington D.C. and we have these conversations, is a uh, climate smart. What is climate smart? Right. And so, climate smart gets thrown out there a lot, but what does that actually mean? So at least with ancient grains, we, we can say, hey, these are actually ancient grains, because we know that <laughs> genetically they were, uh, you know, they were domesticated, uh, you know, a long time ago, well before maize and even the durum wheat that we know now. So if you
1: go back to Babylon uh, several thousand years ago, like you were, you were saying, and they were critical of... They thought you should be, they should be growing something other than that. What they grow instead? Was that wheat coming yeah. on the scene then?
0: I, I would say that uh, that actually really started to change in the modern era. I say modern, okay. in the colonial era. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and that's, you know, of, of course, there's always been other grains on the scene as there should be. It shouldn't just be one grain. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the Middle Eastern diet, of course, is very reliant on, on rice, as a matter of fact. Um, sure. Incidentally, they also have a, a, a kind of an epidemic of diabetes in the Middle East. I've, I've been to the Middle East a few times now. And uh, because they have rice with nearly every meal, uh, obesity and diabetes are a big, big problem in those countries. Um, whereas sorghum can be used as a replacement or an alternative to rice uh, that's lower on the glycemic index. And so it's a great uh, weight, weight loss and diabetic management tool. So, um, but again, those people have forgotten, kind of forgotten about the, the heritage grain uh, the, that came from their region in the first place. And uh, part of our job is to help re reintroduce.
1: Okay, good. You got another buzzword in there. We got heritage too. So we got heritage and ancient and you know, that just makes, that's, that's great. You can get, a now, little I thought little I just,
0: r- I thought I just made that one up.
1: No, no, I love <laughs> it. Well, maybe you did, but it's, it's a thing now. Uh, they, so where in the world are you most likely to see sorghum grown
0: well uh, there's different regions so first of all i'd tell you in the world india you they they understand sorghum and millets listen in fact um for about two or three generations they had been growing wheat primarily And uh, they've had catastrophic uh, crop failures due to drought over the last several years. And uh, they've actually gone back to sorghum and millets because they never really went away. I mean, a lot of the Indian uh, foods that they use include these grains and have always. Um, in fact, the this is the international year of the millet, according to uh, the the United Nations. And that was really driven by the Indian delegation because they said, hey, we've we've really got this to offer and we can see why it makes a lot of sense in a Fine. global climate that that is warming in places um, here in the U.S. Uh, we see it primarily in, in the middle part of the country. So uh, from South Dakota all the way down to Texas. Um, you know, so that would include Kansas, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, uh, a little bit of New Mexico and Colorado as well. I grew up in eastern Nebraska, uh, again, about 45 minutes west of Lincoln, where I live now, on a farm. And back in the 80s, when I was growing up, we had beans, wheat, and milo in rotation. Uh-huh. Um, now, mo- fast forward to the modern day, all that farm ground is corn on corn on soybean rotation, Right. Uh, Which two crops within a rotational system is not really a rotational system. Hmm. Um, A lot of our farmers in that area tell us they would love to grow sorghum and include it in the rotation for the different environmental benefits uh, alone. Um, But uh, if the local grain elevator no longer accepts it, they don't have anywhere to sell it. And so part of our challenge is to create localized value chains. Um, that allow farmers to leverage a higher value market, maybe even than just the commodity market, uh, through uh, local processing.
1: You know where I used to look at it? You said this was grown in the middle of the country. I thought I grew up in the middle of the country, and you were way far west. But it just depends on where you're <laughs> where you're looking. Uh, well,
0: geographically speaking, Kansas technically is the center of the country. Uh, see, However, please. Nebraska is the intersection of the two cross uh, transcontinental highways, Highway 81 and Interstate 80, they actually meet near my hometown uh, there in York, Nebraska. So we like I mean, to think we're, we're the, the functional center of the country here.
1: Well, okay. But you're going 80 miles an hour down that interstate 80, and you might be able to spot some sorghum if you knew what you were looking at. But mm-hmm. then, I want to go back one more thing, though, and still, why in that part of the country is it the best for sorghum? Because the difference, I think, between where I grew up over in central Illinois and even part of part of eastern Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, and so forth, uh where you didn't really see much sorghum i think we have more rain uh i think of that that area that you described as being a little lower rainfall than uh than we have over in the other part of the corn belt
0: but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, let's say let's say this um just because uh sorghum is grown in the middle part of the country um and, and you're right, it's it's due in large part to the lower rainfall amounts. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's better to grow it here than in Illinois. Okay. Um, sorghum is a drought-tolerant crop, which is why in western oh. Nebraska, where it's very dry, uh, eastern Colorado, where it's very dry, and other places like that, sorghum is usually put into rotation because it only uses a third of the water of other crops. And it does like a little bit of heat. But again, we could grow it as far north as South Dakota. Now, that being said, places like Illinois or Iowa, you know, they've been able to really rely on less drought resistant crops um, because they have more rainfall. But that doesn't mean that sorghum would not do well there. In fact, it would probably do very well there. In fact, uh, a lot of the yield contest winners nationally every year come out of places like Pennsylvania. Um, so just just because it's grown in drier climates doesn't necessarily mean that would be the best environment for it. It would do just as well in a, in a wet climate.
1: Well, and if you c- accept some of the projections on climate change, it would suggest that prime space might be moving a little bit. It might it might be a little more north, a little bit more east, uh, which when we, we look at the projections of how the climate seems to be shifting. Um, We're
0: actually, yeah, we're actually seeing that uh, even here in Nebraska, I mean, rainfall amounts, uh, you know, it it gets drier and drier the further east you go anymore. Um, And I've seen some videos about this, uh, talk about this topic as well, the 100th meridian and, you know, how mm -hmm. that used to be, you know, kind of the marker for the drier part of the country, but how that's moved maybe now to the 97th meridian or something like that. Salina,
1: um, Salina, Kansas, I think that the 100th meridian goes right through there. So the Land Institute has uh, set up a system there. They probably look at sorghum too.
0: Uh, well, they should be. And one of the challenges we have um, is actually educating educators. So I'll give you an example of this. Um, and I'm a big fan. So I'm not trying to knock anyone down here. But I was in Jordan um, just a couple years ago, last year. And we, the United States, um, we spend a lot of money in Jordan through USAID to help support um, the agriculture there and to provide training.
1: Mm-hmm. And for
0: good reason. I mean, Jordan is one of the countries that accepts most of the refugees in the region. Um, and they're also very, very resource scarce, water in particular. There are some villages that get a, they'll get a water truck come to town every two weeks, and that's their all the water they have until they come back. Sure, they're Also drilling wells 4,000 feet deep in the desert. And so when I talk with our friends at USAID, um, I say, oh, man, that's that's terrible. What are you teaching them how to grow here in the desert? Are you teaching them sorghum and millets? And they're saying, well, no, we te- we're teaching them corn. Well, why are you teaching them corn when sorghum uses a third of the water uh-huh. and provides better nutritional outcomes, actually? Uh, when the answer you get is, well, we don't know sorghum and millets, you know, and then mm. you can't blame them. If they're not taught sorghum and millets, how can the educators teach other people about them, Right. So a lot of it is educating the educators. Uh, so whether that's here in Nebraska or that's uh, with international programs, um, that's one of the challenges we have within the industry.
1: So you were describing where you grow more of it. It's not a crop or a fruit or vegetable or something that we could say, I'm just going to grow in my backyard and sell it at the farmer's market. I mean, for the most part, you know, you're going to be a farm and you're going to have a certain amount of acreage. This isn't the sort of thing that lends itself to a, a micro-size farming operation. That I don't know that you...
0: I would say that that's true. Respectfully, uh, I mean, you think about most most of the uh, farmers in the world are smallholder farmers that are farming on one to two hectares. Yeah, and in a lot of parts of Africa, you know, the, that's what these folks are growing. Right. Right. Small now, my wife's got a garden here, just outside my patio. Um, you know, and she grows sweet corn and she sure. would sure. take that sweet corn and then sell it at the farmer's market. She do the same thing with sorghum, um, you know, the, it's an open head, it's a grain, it's an open head. Um, but if you were able to get it off the head and clean it, you know, uh, you absolutely could. Oh. And, and frankly, you can, I mean, you should cook it. Don't get me wrong. Again, we we'll sure. use twice. Um, but you can eat the grain berry right off the plant. Uh, wow. It's just a little, it's just a little harder not being cooked, but you can eat it that way. Um, the only reason I say you need to clean no. it is because it's an open head versus corn that has a husk around it, so sure. you know, you get some dust and things in there. But, sure. Um. Yeah. If if uh, if you have a good process to get the grain berries off the head, you absolutely could. You could sell by the bagful.
1: But typical commercial size would people have to have uh, a combine and uh, with. What as if they were harvesting uh, harvesting wheat the same equipment would that be that they'd use for wheat farms
0: it is it's actually the same header that uh, that folks use for their soybeans uh, oh. you just lift, you just lift the header a little up off the ground there are uh, my there are some uh, specialty headers that farmers can buy if they specifically want to get that one of the coolest ones i've seen lately uh, is actually produced right here in nebraska from giltner nebraska a company called bish enterprises and um, yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a hmm. lot of wind in Nebraska. Sure, yeah. And this is a problem for all the crops. And uh, so, you know, a lot of farmers will y- lose some of their yield because their plant uh, gets knocked down in the wind. And so, Bish developed a header actually that can pick up the grain off the ground while they're harvesting the other uh, other uh, still standing stocks as well. Hmm. Um, so that's 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 neat. Um, but uh, even without a specialty header. Again, it's the same same technology that folks use for their soybeans. So,
1: and do you plant them with a, a drill or a broadcast, or how does it get? In, how do you get the seeds in the ground?
0: Uh, it kind of depends on on what your preference is. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of people like in western Nebraska, they'll drill wheat. Um, you know, I've got farmers that uh, you know will, will broadcast it. Uh, you know, about usually typically a fifteen to thirty inch row spacing. Fifteen seems to be the most effective. Uh, because it provides a nice canopy that keeps weeds down. um but i've I've seen it both ways mm-hmm.
1: And then do you have to do anything to it between from the time you get it started until you uh, they they' not they have to go back in the field or spray or anything like that uh, prior to harvest
0: well this this is where uh, some farmers uh, run into a bit of a problem because you know we always tell them that it's a lower input crop and they take that to mean that it doesn't need any nitrogen or fertilizer. And the reality is that, you know, it's like any other crop. You still have to manage it. So it takes about a, pa- a pound of nitrogen per bushel um, is is the reasoning there. And that's the same as corn, where you see the lower input cost is, again, with water usage in particular, a third of the water, but also the cost of the seed. You know, it costs on average in Nebraska about $15 an acre uh, to plant sorghum, to plant grain sorghum, I should say, uh, versus an acre-ish to plant corn. Mm -hmm. Um, So that alone. And so farmers will say, well, you know, it doesn't produce as much yield as corn. And so, you know, I can grow 300 bushel corn uh, under irrigation versus maybe, you know, maybe 200 bushel sorghum. And, you know, from that logic, you'd say, well, yeah, why would you possibly want to grow sorghum? But if you pencil it out, you know, usually sorghum and, and corn are pretty close in market price together. And if you pencil it out and include those input costs... Uh, you actually, you know, you come out pretty, pretty even, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a good option. And again, we love corn as well. So I don't want to, we're not trying to pick on them, but we're saying, you know, it, this is a good uh, tool in addition to those other crops in a cropping system. Well, corn
1: has been always able to participate the farm programs and there are certain kinds of subsidies or more, or even insurance programs and so forth that, that corn's been able to capitalize on does sorghum does sorghum have any sort of uh, benefits from federal programs
0: yeah this is actually uh goes back to our our initial topic of why we don't see more of it now and um, let me so let me jump back into that a little bit the short answer to your question is yes there is crop insurance for sorghum Mm
1: -hmm. however
0: um in 1986 with the passage of the farm bill that was the first one that had crop insurance but it only had crop insurance for corn and soybeans yeah not wheat not sorghum and at the same time um it, we, that farm bill introduced the conservation reserve program which is a great program took fragile lands out of production so they could be conserved what happened was though a lot of because sorghum is so resilient a lot of those fragile lands that went into the crp program uh, were sorghum producing fields. So I want to say overnight, Nebraska alone lost something like 73,000 acres because farmers could get paid uh, to not farm these fragile lands. Um, and then also at the same time, they didn't have any protection for their sorghum crop. You know, that and the advent and expansion of center pivot irrigation, uh, of which Nebraska is a leading state in. Um, you know, really led to those acres moving further and further west. Uh, And that's that's kind of where we're at today as far as, uh, you know, in the United States and why we saw that in the more modern era than the colonial era era that I talked about earlier. So explain how that works, uh, the the insurance
1: program then. So a farmer actually pays something, a premium, but then has some protection on some pricing disaster or natural disaster or that that sort
0: of. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, for your listeners sake, it's never a hundred percent. So just like, uh, just like if you were to insure, you know, uh, anything else, I mean, uh, well, let's, let's talk about, um, let's, let's talk about short-term disability. That's, this is probably a a good example of this, right? Short-term disability, you're going to be compensated uh, maybe 80% of your income. You're not going to get compensated the full hundred percent. Right. Part of the... Part of the incentive is then to be able to heal up do the the work to get back to work and mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing in the in the crop insurance world I guess I would say from a layman's standpoint is that uh, you know the farmers they don't get their crop 100 percent covered uh they they get it covered based on County T yields and what that means is the historic yields so if you've grown corn and you can show that you know, Last few years, you grew X number of bushels. That's what your uh, insurance is going to be based off of, whether you're Mm -hmm. able to grow more or not. Now, with sorghum, we do have crop insurance for sorghum. That was rectified in the following farm bill after 1986. However, um, the challenge has always been that um, some of these areas that have moved on and not grown sorghum, say, in 30 years, if that farmer decides now to grow sorghum, he has to do so I has to ensure it, I should say, based on 30 year old yield data. And we know uh, through because of the research and advancements in the industry that that is no longer accurate data. Oh. Uh, when I was a director of the Nebraska Sorghum Board, and you know this is something we worked with the um, United Sorghum Checkoff program out of Texas on quite a bit. and I'm happy to say that um, uh, the last I knew, which was very recently, uh, the United Sorghum Checkoff Program had uh, had kind of reached uh, some sort of uh, um, a uh, pilot program, I should say, with RMA. At U- RMA is who sets the insurance rates at USDA uh, to try to modernize how we look at those county tea yields so that it makes more sense for farmers to include these crops in the rotation.
1: So you have reason to keep an eye on the Farm Bill to uh as everybody does in agriculture these days as been the farm they'll be getting worked on now but let me let me ask you now so if we raise this crop and we have sorghum what's it good for what's the what's the mix how much uh how much of the product goes into what are the products it goes into
0: right well the short answer again is food fuel and fiber just like any other grain uh, the modern market where we are right now, I'll tell you that China buys 93 percent of the U.S. supply of sorghum. They buy 80 percent of the world's supply of sorghum. And so you wonder, well, my gosh, that's a lot of sorghum that's going to China. What on earth are they using it for? Well, part of it goes into feeding ducks and, and other birds. But the majority of it goes into something called baijiu, And baijiu is a word that I'm sure many of your listeners are not familiar with. Um, But this is an alcoholic uh, beverage. It's kind of like a distilled whiskey-type drink uh, made with sorghum. And it is the most widely drank spirit in the world that you've never heard of. Tess spell that for me. B-A-I-J-I-U, Baijiu. And there are different variations depending on which part of the country you're from and which which, uh, Asian country you're from. They call it different things, but Hmm. I've always known it as Baijiu. It's a cultural touchstone in China. So if you go to a formal dinner in China, they're uh, giving you shots of baijiu all night. Um, By the third one, you're funny and you can dance. Uh, So let's talk about that market alone in the U.S., because this is an incredible market opportunity that's been kind of briefly discovered. Um, There's a huge Chinese expatriate community here in the United States. Again, this drink is a cultural touchstone that they cannot get here. Um, unless they you know, are in a larger city and some bars will carry it sort of thing. So Buffalo Trace, a couple of years ago, uh, to my understanding, uh, they made a Baijiu-style drink, a small batch, uh, I think eight barrels. And when they announced that it was available, it sold out online almost in minutes. Mm. And then the last time I looked, which was about a year ago now, uh, on the secondary market, I saw a bottle, an unopened bottle of this selling for $1,000. So there's definitely a demand for it. The trick is learning how to make it because it's like so many things that, you know, the, this is not always information that is readily shared from our, our friends uh, across the Pacific there. Uh, in West Africa, uh, they do use it quite a bit in beers. That's where it's commonly known in West Africa is, is in beer. Places like Ethiopia and India, um, they they eat it. Um, there's a really some really healthy uh, porridge recipes, for example, that I know USAID and other research institutions uh, and humanitarian institutions like to uh, try to use and promote in Africa. Um, but as far as food goes here in the U.S., uh, you know, listen, you can pop it like popcorn. It's a smaller pop. Um, we, you can roast it like corn nuts. It's an easier crunch. And it's flavor neutral, so you can flavor it however you want, just like popcorn. Um, You can use it like rice in a pilaf or in a soup. There's actually a jambalaya I like to make with it. Um, And you can use it in flour. It's a gluten-free product. Uh, So if you buy an all-purpose sorghum flour blend that has xanthan gum in it and a bit of potato starch, uh, Mm -hmm. the xanthan gum replaces the the binder that is gluten. Um, We use it at our house just like we would regular wheat flour. Uh, so cookies so in cakes, in, breads, in
1: what in what way may it be superior to wheat flour
0: well in, in, in particular in the fact that it's gluten-free and again you know we, uh, sure. we, we never want to uh, every every product every grain has its own attributes and, and its own things that are good um, and things that are maybe a challenge um, for sorghum it's it's gluten-free that's the The big selling point. Uh, For folks who want a non-GMO grain, uh, sorghum is non-GMO. Now, I tell my farmers, it doesn't really matter where you sit on the GMO versus non-GMO fence when it comes to marketing. And we can have that conversation all day long, um, and and I love to have the conversation to understand why people are where they are on that topic. Um, The reality is, if you have a consumer that wants a product that's non-GMO, and you have a product that is non-GMO, it makes less sense to fight with them than it is just to sell it to them (laughs) yeah and you know i mean farming is a business and we should be in this to make you know to make a profit so we can be economically sustainable right Uh, you know from a nutrition standpoint uh you know there have been some studies uh through the united sorghum checkup program that have done a really good job showing the nutritional value and the nutrient uh value Uh, for sorghum as compared to other grains like rice or wheat or corn or even quinoa and sorghum comes out uh, very very favorably Um, I think we've got that uh, chart actually on our website at sorghumunited.com as well
1: now is it able to be like say like wheat Uh, you can you can get wheat products that are either whole grain or not is it the same thing with sorghum that it can be whole grain or or not whole grain
0: Correct, correct. So um, a whole grain has a little more nutrition, but it takes a little more time to cook it because you've still got the whole right. On, right. The, on the grain itself. Um, the faster way to cook it is to use a pearled grain, and that just means it's been de Um And it's it's a little more digestible, too, as a pearled grain, although we eat the whole grain at home and we have no problems. I, the only reason I say digestible, in that is in the sense that uh, that maybe you can get some more of the uh, other nutrients and things um you know, out of the grain before it passes that sort of thing it's um, fascinating
1: yeah and it's, and is, it, it's, is it too expensive to use for livestock feed
0: no in fact part of the challenge in the industry is that it's most commonly used as livestock feed not only here but around the world
1: mm-hmm.
0: um so that's that's a low value market uh for a grain that actually has a lot of high value potential and, and we've just talked about the food by the way but right. we haven't talked about ethanol you know well, let's talk our, about ethanol Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah. So uh, we don't use sorghum in any ethanol here in Nebraska. And there's some complicated reasons why that is. But in Kansas, Texas, it fits right in with their blend in their ethanol blend. Um, From a yield standpoint, it uh, produces just about as much uh, actually, really close to the same amount of uh, volume of ethanol as does corn. Um, it, but it's a lower oil content, so you don't get as much as the byproduct, which is part of the reason why we don't use it here in Nebraska. Because you know there's also value in the byproduct. You know, from the from the byproduct, you also get the DDGs or distillers grains, and those are commonly fed to livestock. Um, and what we found, and what we've seen through research, I should say, is that the D, the DDGs using sorghum uh, are just as good it, it, for the livestock as those using corn. However, they do come out a different color. So some cattlemen say, well, maybe I don't want that. It's a different color. Uh, But the research shows that nutritionally for the animals, it's just as good. And then there's also things like bioplastics. Um, In fact, there was a company in India. I'm not sure if they're still in business now, but there for a while, there was a company. They were making disposable silverware with sorghum. Um, But what was interesting was that you could actually eat it. It was edible. So you could eat your (laughs) salad and then you could eat your fork. And they came in different flavors. Oh, that's Um, great. And here in Lincoln, as another great example, uh, there's a startup company. They're making carbon fiber with grain sorghum. And they've patented the process. They're in the the process of scaling up. And so we talk about carbon fiber, you know, it comes from petroleum products, right? And so you could say that's not necessarily renewable. Well, you're making it with grain sorghum. It is renewable. And not only that. Uh, the gentleman who runs that, his name is Dr. Tui. he tells me he can make a pound of carbon fiber using grain sorghum for about $2.30 a pound. And if he's making that same pound of carbon fiber with petroleum that's not renewable, it costs him about $5.30 a pound. So once he scales up, imagine the the drop in price for carbon fiber on the market, if he's able to scale that up and really bring it to market. You know, that's going to affect everything from the cost of your phone to your laptop to, you know, the drone you might want to fly. Uh, so I mean, that's really remarkable. So, I mean, really the, the uses for, gra- for grain sorghum are, are endless. And then, you know, talking about forage sorghum, which uh, that's the really tall stock with a very small grain head on it. And that's where maybe a lot of your listeners are more familiar with sorghum syrup, which has been around for a long, long time. It's very big in the South. Um, that crop is, is kind of used like sugar cane, you know, it contains a lot of sugars in it. Mm -hmm. So they'll grow it. The stock is 10, 11 feet tall. They don't worry about the head. There's not much there. Uh, and so they just press it and extract the sugars. Um, you know, so really between forage sorghum and grain sorghum, there are a lot of different uses for these grains, um, that are, and I know you want to talk about environment, uh, that that have a really great impact on the environment as well.
1: Well, let's talk about the environment. So uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you use less water, so that's certainly important. You still you said, though, you use about the same amount of nitrogen as some of the com- comparable crops uh, would, would use, so you don't get a savings there. So what else is the environmental impact story?
0: Well, let's start with soil health. So the most common problem in agriculture around the world, no matter where you are, is something called the compaction layer. So about five and a half, six feet down, there's a layer of soil. It's compact. And other crops, the roots are not strong enough or go deep enough to penetrate it. Mm-hmm. And sorghum has a very large root biomass. It goes about six feet down. It's very big. And it does penetrate that, that, com- that compaction layer. What that means, and we've seen this through research at Kansas State University, what that means is that um, because sorghum breaks that layer up and can access that water that's deeper um, and other nutrients as well, well, that's also then true for crops following sorghum in rotation. Uh, So when corn or soybeans or wheat, when their roots hit that compaction layer, instead of going down, they just spread out. That makes them less drought resistant. After sorghum, when that compaction layer is broken up, they're more drought resistant because their roots then can penetrate further. Mm. Uh, so there's that alone. We talk about carbon sequestration. That's a big, a big conversation right now is carbon markets and what that looks like for farmers as an additional revenue source, and what it means for the planet as we try to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil. The Texas A and M released a study last year. That showed that uh, because of that large root biomass, sorghum is one of the ideal crops for sequestering carbon. It captures more carbon and buries it in the soil deeper and for longer. Uh, So there's a lot of uh, benefits just there alone. But when we talk more about biodiversity, there's a whole other conversation to have. You know, uh, Hunter will tell you that the best place to find pheasant or quail in the fall is in a sorghum field. A lot of people plant sorghum just for that. Actually, this is a huge industry in South America, in Argentina, uh, dove hunting. And and they'll plant sorghum with no intent to harvest it, but be, it attracts so many doves that you know, Americans will go down there for dove hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, That's another revenue source, by the way, for farmers uh, who maybe want to rent out their <laughs> land for hunting, and that can happen anywhere. Now, where I grew up in, in eastern Nebraska, again, where we used to have milo in rotation, Boy when I was a kid you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a, a wild game bird mm-hmm. and now with the corn on corn on soybean rotation those those animals just aren't there anymore um you know so
1: what what about the critters under the soil what, what about the microbiome what implications does, does it have any different effects than uh, than other grains and especially when you started describing about the root system going so much deeper and everything i'm i'm just becoming more and more conscious of, uh, of the role that the, the microbes are playing in in a healthy crop and healthy soils uh, and i'm wondering how much uh, sorghum might be complementary
0: well, you're leaving more uh, biology in the soil, which is good for the microbiology that, mm-hmm. that maybe feeds on that. Uh, by the way, if you talk to a soil scientist, they hate the word dirt because uh, soil is a living thing. I mean, we sure. don't think of it that way. But sure. you know, you know, a healthy soil uh, relies on the, the microbiology that we've really only historically recently become aware of. Right. Um, just like just like the human gut relies on uh, the microbiome sure. that helps us to to digest our food and stay healthy.
1: Oh, yeah. now we've got plenty of podcasts. You'll have to listen to some of them that are going on about that. And I'm getting quite in, in enthused about it. Well, I want to wrap up uh, a little bit from a couple of perspectives. One from a farmer perspective, one from maybe even marketers perspective, one from consumers perspective. So let me start with the consumers, though. I mean, if there's people listening to this that will never grow sorghum, they may try to seek it out. Uh, And and if somebody's saying, gee, I wish maybe I should be eating more products that are made with sorghum, what's available? If somebody wanted to seek foods that include a, a healthy amount of sorghum in it.
0: Well, there's two answers to this. The uh, the short answer is we're seeing more and more processors that are producing products and everything from small entrepreneurs to even larger companies that are using sorghum in their formulations. This is true, actually, especially in pet food. But we're seeing it in baby foods as well as granola bars, cereals, things like that. The Cheerios my wife eats, for example, has sorghum. Uh, most stores in larger cities, like your, your Targets or your Walmarts, your larger stores, uh, they're selling flour that includes sorghum flour, maybe not as much as we'd like, but the gluten-free flour that does include sorghum flour. Um, and then in health food stores like Trader Joe's, uh, Whole Foods, places like that, we're seeing more and more of the whole grain and the pearled grain. Um, The other answer to that question is, as a consumer, if you'd like to learn more, uh, Sorghum United has just published a series of children's books. The first one's available on Amazon now. Uh, the second one should be up here within the next week. And then we've got two more in the works. And these are graphic novel style books that are fun for, for ages 7 to 12, um, but also in, informational for, for parents. They're called The Sorgo Squad. And I'm kind of a comic book nerd, so they're they're kind of based in the comic book style. They're an easy read. They have great illustrations. You can find those on Amazon, or you can also go to sorgosquad.com. And if you're still wanting from there to dive in and learn more about Sorghum, we have some great resources on our website at sorghumunited.com.
1: Huh? So, Bell farmers i suppose um, certainly in the area where other people are growing sorghum we'll see whether or not it looks like a good crop for them i suppose but if you're going to if you're in an area that it's kind of new do you find help at extension you somebody that's you know going to make a decision that you know i haven't even i've never grown sorghum before but maybe i could uh what do they do
0: Yeah, Extension will have great information. Another thing they can do is they can reach out to us just at sorghumunited uh, at gmail.com. I'm not an agronomist, but I can point them in the direction of agronomists. Uh, United Sorghum Checkoff Program does have digital field guides that are regionalized as well, and those are available on their website as PDFs. And those will take you through everything you need to know on the agronomy side if you're wanting to plant it. Now the biggest challenge for farmers uh, that are saying, "Hey, this is great. We should have it in our rotation." i you know, maybe it's time to get back into this crop. You know, the biggest challenge is finding somewhere to sell it. And I mentioned earlier that China buys a lot of it, and that's great when they're buying, but when they're not buying, that's a challenge. And so one of the missions that Sorghum United has, both here in the U.S. as well as other countries abroad, is to develop, you know, these resilient and profitable. Regional value chains. So we're talking about local processing proximate to the production of the grain, um, and if farmers uh, can can help to support that, and maybe get some of the grain under contract in rotation rather than just settling for the commodity price by working with a local processor, you know that's a, that's another great way to get into it. Um, I'm always happy to entertain more conversations about that. Um, You know, one thing that we're really pushing for in these these areas that are geographically central, but maybe not close to a port uh, to take full advantage of the commodity world is uh, putting together, um, you know, this this concept of uh, co-packing facilities and small business development centers. We have businesses all (laughs) over the world that use these grains that would like to locate or expand into the U.S. But let's face it, it's a hard sell to get noodle maker to move from the south of France. Uh, to, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, So if we have a a small business incubator and a a co-packing facility in which that person then can extend their team, though, that makes a lot of sense.
1: You know, when you said that China buys a lot, that's an understatement. You had an incredible percentage, and if they didn't show up sometime, that would make you very, very nervous. Makes me feel like you're something like what we're facing now with Agave, because there's such a great demand for mezcal and, te- and tequila that is all coming from Mexico. But it turns out we can grow agave very well in California. So there's been an agave council formed. And they're working with distillers to start growing agave here. And also coming up with agave spirits that are mezcal-like uh, spirits. And uh, I-, I wonder if there's the need to do something similar uh, to be having distillers making this was it baiju You say Baijiu, yeah, Baijiu,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and produce it here in the states.
0: There absolutely is, and you know, well, I talk to a lot of student groups, and and usually high school to college age, right? And um, when we're talking to them, I, I ask them always, uh, you know, do, who who here has a, a a parent that owns their own business, and they'll raise a hand, and so say, I'll say, well, what would your parent say? if their business was dependent uh, by 80 to 93% on one customer mm-hmm. and the kids are smart enough, they say, well, that'd be a bad thing. I said, well, why is that? Well, because if that customer stops buying, they don't have a business. And I said, that's exactly the point. And in fact, we saw this in the recent trade dispute with China between China and the United States. Uh, sorghum was kind of the shot across the bow. That was the first thing they stopped buying. And guess what? Prices plummeted. Sure. Um you know and and even when they do buy because they buy so much of it that market price can be um artificially uh, manipulated a bit uh, by by the volume that they're that they command. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it only makes the most sense for us to not only continue to to develop commodity markets with other countries around the world, which is important. Um, but what we really focus on, where our bread and butter is, is how do we how do we enhance those value added domestic markets to offset the cost, and maybe we can do it in such a way with sorghum being both a commodity and a specialty grain, not either or, but both. Maybe we can do it in such a way that. Uh, you know, for the central parts of the country, where which has great access to the domestic market geographically, but not as great access to the ports for the commodity market. Maybe those can become specialty markets to augment the commodity markets. And that's well, interesting. We're trying to get to.
1: Well, I really appreciate your taking this time. Any final comments, uh, any other information of where people should be able to seek further information if we accidentally didn't get every single thing covered today?
0: Well, again, I would we're really proud of our websites. I would direct folks to uh, sorghumunited.com and then squad That's S-O-R-G-H-O-Squad.com, uh, also available on Amazon. Those are great ways to learn more about sorghum and you know, maybe even teach the kids about some sustain- sustainability and things like that as well. Um, you know, you can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um And LinkedIn is just my personal LinkedIn, but you can find me there. It's Nate Bloom, B L U M.
1: Okay. Nate, I really appreciate this conversation. And I'm going to go see if I can find a shot of Baijo somewhere. I, I'm way behind. That's part of my education. I think I'm going to have to follow up on. But it's <laughs> been great talking to you. Thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk.
0: It's been my pleasure, Roger. Thank you so much for what you do.
1: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.